Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsudliff.com. I am an American board certified OBGYN, a mom, a Muslim, and I'm talking about sex. This is the Muslim Sex Podcast. Hey, Assalamualaikum. Assalamualaikum. How are you? Good, good, good. How are you? I'm so excited to have you on. Oh, thank you. I was rushing back from clinic and I was like, I really hope I'm not late. And then I saw your message. And so, sorry, I'm all a bit out of sorts because it's Friday here and the Jummah prayers just happened. And when I live very close to the mosque, which is about two doors away. And um, there's just so many cars on the road that block you in. So I was like, oh my goodness. Thank you so much for having me, honestly. No, I'm so excited to have you on. So I want to know all about you. And I see that you um, just, is it a documentary on endometriosis or below the belt? Yes. Oh, uh, gosh, I'd love to talk about that. So um, just want to say, do you want to like, hello, everybody? Yes, yes please. So um, introduce, if you could just introduce yourself to um, our guests. I'm sure most of the people know who you are. But for those of us in the U.S., if you could introduce you. Yeah, hi everybody, and um, thank you so much for joining our Instagram Live. I'm Dr. Nagat, I'm an NHS GP in England. So I'm just outside of London in a small area called Buckinghamshire. That's where I live um, and work as well. And uh, I do, my specialism as a GP, because we're family practitioners, um, is that I also do women's health. Uh, in that, I do menopause as well. And that really came about because when we are training, as you know, Suffer, we go on different rotations and the need for women of color, for women who don't speak English as a first language, and I speak Punjabi from Pakistan, I'm from Lahore. Woohoo! <laughs> so, you know, that's the culture that I've grown up with. But there's a real need for women to have access to know to how to navigate the healthcare system in the UK. And nice. um, along that pandemic hit, and when the pandemic hit, I started doing more on social media in regards to raising awareness around women's health. So last night, uh, actually no, Wednesday night, I went to the premiere of a movie um, by, uh, called <laughs> The Belt. I know, honestly, I have to clap this woman because she is phenomenal. And the movie is a, a decade's work. Wow. Put down under an hour and a half. And it's following four women, um, uh, different ethnicities, uh, different backgrounds, uh, socioeconomic backgrounds as well, in Northern America, one I think is in Canada as well. And what it does is it follows this, their journey through pain really, and the fact that there's a, the key things that stood out for, for me was that one, their pain wasn't believed. And I think yes. that that's something that I'm sure you get with your women from your community. Yes. No one knew the diagnosis of endometriosis. There was very little known about. Wow. There's no test for it. You don't see it on an ultrasound scan. You can't see it even on an MRI. And sometimes you get it on a laparoscopy as well. Um, And then there was no treatment. There's no cure for endometriosis. And so um, Shannon Cohen, she won't mind me sharing this because she shared this with everybody. She's also an endometriosis sufferer. And um, she went on a personal journey because she hadn't realized that as, a, as you know, she has endometriosis, but her, she can pass it on to her daughters or her daughters can also have endometriosis as well. And then she just thought, thought, right, I need to raise awareness about this. 
And she made this phenomenal movie just to highlight to healthcare professionals, these are the issues, please can we make sure that women aren't being missed. And um, there's a global conversation happening around women's pain and women's health anyway. Um, and it's produced by Hillary Clinton. So it's a real honor to go to the EU, you know, the European premiere. And hopefully I think it's going to go out into mainstream soon. That's so exciting. That's so exciting. So, you know, um, with endometriosis, as you know, I'm sure is that, you know, the, the, the amount of disease doesn't correlate to the amount of pain. So you could have tons of disease and not experience much pain or vice versa, right? Not have much disease and have a lot of pain. So you're so right about that. Um, I know here that we sometimes do like, um, like Lupron or something to stop the menses so that, you know, women don't have that much pain. But you're right, there isn't much treatment. And sometimes, you know, with laparoscopy, we can go in and burn those lesions and things like that. But yeah, I mean, you know, it's supposed to get better after menopause. But, uh, but you're right. I mean, there is, you know, a lot of pain with endometriosis. And a lot of times it's hard to diagnose. And sometimes it's a diagnosis of exclusion. It is a diagnosis of exclusion. I think people underestimate that it can start relatively young. So on average, the statistics are is that one in 10 women will suffer from endometriosis. Um, it takes a roughly about seven to 10 years to diagnose because we don't believe that it is a diagnosis. One, because we don't have a test. And as healthcare professionals, so in, the, in, in, in England, in the UK, we have the NHS. So we are limited cost-wise sometimes on what tests we can do. So we first start off by the woman presenting to the family physician, the GP, such as myself. And we're generalists, we do everything, and then we might develop a specialism within us. And I remember, I don't know about you, Safna, but at medical school, I probably had one slide um, telling me what endometriosis, uh, endometriosis was. And it was almost like, oh, but it's manageable because you just give women some pain relief or put them on the contraceptive pill and stop them having periods. Right. Endometriosis, the definition for those watching, is, is cells similar to the lining of the womb, which get deposited mm -hmm. in the pelvis um, and causes, like you were saying, a spectrum of symptoms to somebody could have like grade four endometriosis and have no symptoms to the point where someone can have few specks of endometriosis and they can have painful periods, painful sexual intercourse, bowel problems as well, difficulty passing urine. Um, they can have severe cramps. Um, they can have real issues in regards to fertility, subfertility, loss, pregnancy loss as well. Um, and I think that what the movie highlighted was that the dignity that comes along with women's pain and how firstly, they're not listened to. And secondly, that they lose everything. They lose their, their the, presenting to A&E, wanting morphine, they're seen as drug addicts. Yeah. Um, and then wanting to, you know, think about, well, I want to try for a baby, but then being pushed, well, have the myrene or, you know, a, a long active contraceptive, a lock that will stop this and not really giving them a solution. And in the US, you know, the, one of the women on the documentary, I mean, her dad took out a second mortgage um, oh. to pay for the surgery that his daughter needed to burn away the ablation. And I think the difficulty is, is that the pathway is set in a way in the UK particularly is where, we will say this is a condition where it's long term, but it's just a management condition. And where does fertility come into it? Where does planning your babies in the future come into it? 
And then where do we find that surgery plays a role and the complications? Because even if you have surgery, unfortunately, as you know, it will come back for some women. Yes. And then we manage that level because it's so variable. It's such an individual disease. For, and, and where do we get the awareness so healthcare professionals can diagnose it early enough to get the intervention in? And I think the barriers to those bits of healthcare are the things that we're still fighting for at the moment. And, and that's an ongoing conversation that we need to constantly have. Right, right. And as you know, <clears throat> endometriosis is responsive to, you know, the estrogen, right? So even if you get some of that disease um, taken care of, if you have little lesions throughout the pelvis, you know, every time we have that estrogen that's present, you know, you can still have pain, you can still, it doesn't really get a you know, you don't really get rid of all of that pain. So you're right. It is a persistent disease. It is very difficult for women that suffer from it. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I think the biggest thing is, is that women are resilient. Like I always say that um, uh, you know what pain is from the age of what? The average age of starting your periods is about 10 now because we're yeah. getting... So we are built to resist pain. <laughs> it's like... yeah. We, you know, ask a boy at the age of 10, do you know what pain is? And probably will just say, oh, I'll scrape my knee. But this is a yeah. month of pain. Yes, <laughs> yes. Young girls too. And yet we still don't have a way of managing that. And one of the other things that I do is that I insert coils um, for my patients. And at best, depending on the information that they're given, and sometimes, I mean, I've heard some irrevocable stories, but they're told, oh, take some paracetamol and some ibuprofen before you come for your coil insertion. And you're like, what? This is a coil insertion. And they're coming in their lunch hour to have it inserted. And then they're back on the bus to go back to work. <laughs> Whereas I used to sit in and assist in vasectomy clinics. And here you can have, depending on which area that you live in, you can have a vasectomy on the NHS. And there's a rigorous process where you counsel the man, you go through it. This is, you know, you're having a vasectomy, your fertility will be affected. You know, there's 1% chance that you might have chronic pain um, afterwards. And then we give them local anesthetic and then get this, they can have, in some areas, they can have a sick note for work for up to six weeks. Because oh my gosh. <laughs> oh my God, that's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? And then women will have a coil in their lunch hour, get on the bus and go back to work and then run a team. And it's crazy how that is, that is crazy. balance completely um, yeah. between you know, healthcare uh, and management of pain for men and women. Yeah, absolutely. So just for the people in the US that don't know what a coil is, so that's an IUD, right? You're talking about an intrauterine Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, sorry, sorry. Yeah. yeah, no, no, that's that's great. And then the the paracetamol is the Tylenol that we call here. Tylenol. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So that's yeah, that's amazing, right? Like the difference. Like, and I've seen vasectomies. I when I was a medical student, there was a family practitioner that used to do them in his office, and um, you know they're, they're they don't they're not like a involved procedure. I mean, it's it's pretty easy, you know, to do. And he used to do them like just. <laughs> in his office yeah i mean, yeah. I mean yeah. here the same you do them in a gp surgery um you set aside a room for a clinical room you, you know it's not a major operation it's i would say having an iud you know a coil as we say in the uk inserted into the uterus is far more invasive because you've got to clamp the uterus you know 
get it inside, put a sound in to check the depth of the uterus. And so it's, it's far more complex. And, and we don't offer, I mean, some women will say to you, look, we were offered nothing. Yes. I, and I think women's pain is something that um, is surrounded with so many different factors. But at the bare minimum, we should be saying, well, we're going to have an invasive procedure done on you. Let's make the position where we can give you a cervical block. I mean, cervical block is an injection into the neck of the womb. So that can be sore in itself. But I use um, lidocaine spray. Uh, oh. That really numbs the, the neck of the womb. And I use Instilogel. Instilogel just helps... Uh, having a speculum inserted into the into the vagina and also if you know that a woman might have vaginal atrophy if you're putting a, a marina coil in for a component of HRT then prepping the woman three months in advance and going go on vaginal as always my colleague Dr Rachel Rubin always says vaginal <laughs> sorry <laughs> go on vaginal estrogen for uh, you know three months or so before you come in and have this procedure because not only have you had pain from the procedure but now you're having pain because you've got a speculum put in when there's vaginal atrophy there and it, yeah. it's being mindful of this and, and unfortunately we have that disjointed care that we we forget that yeah absolutely absolutely no you're definitely correct about the vaginal atrophy and you know the pain with the speculum and and absolutely, you know, I actually had two IUDs placed and um, no one ever offered me any like type of cervical block or anything like that, you know, and we forget that it is painful, right? Yeah. And you saw that on social media where everybody was talking about IUD insertion and how painful it is and how we don't, especially here in the US, you know, we just say, oh, it's, you know, it's a quick procedure. It's gonna, it's a little bit uncomfortable, but you know, you'll be fine. And I think we're just used to like, the pain that women go through in labor, right? And how painful that is. And we think, oh, well, IUD insertion is nothing compared to that, right? Whereas yeah. when we're talking about with men getting vasectomies and getting six weeks off, that's, <laughs> that's really amazing. That's across the world. But I know when I did it in my area, yeah. <laughs> um, I had a gentleman who insisted that his employer gets a six-week notice that he was going to be off because he'd had a vasectomy. Um, oh, my has stuck with me and I was a junior trainee then and I, I just even then I was thinking like you're gonna tell your employer I mean, he got paid sick leave for six weeks and I just thought we would never women never would even have the guts to ask I think they would I know. like they would you know they wouldn't even tell their employer look I'm going off to go and have a are you doing session they would rather say I've got a sore throat or a headache yes <laughs> yes you're so right. You know, there's, there's so much um, shame and taboo, you know, around our bodies and, you know, what we're willing to share and, and uh, be open and honest about. But I, I want to know so much about you. So tell me about your journey. And, um, you know, you just went to Buckingham Palace. I saw that. That was exciting. <laughs> yeah. Oh, Great. So tell you. us. Um, so um, I'm an immigrant. I, I always start there. <laughs> I mean, I wasn't born in the UK. I came from Pakistan when I was nine years old. And um, uh, this is to me is home. And I feel very much a British Pakistani grounded in my roots. And I think that uh, uh, with sometimes the negativity that we get around um, migrants uh, is really hard. But um, in the US, I think there's less so because it's a country made up of migrants. Whereas in the UK, we still have those issues around, you know, is this, are you really from this country? 
Um, so we do have um, institutionalized racism and, and actually that's uh, recognized in the latest SAGE, which is these government reports that they bring out, uh, which in the COVID, we were looking at deaths among black, Asian, ethnic minority communities. And we'd had, you know, in some cases, 90% deaths have, or adverse reactions happened in ethnic minority communities. And one of the outcomes was, was because of institutionalized racism um, in this country. It's, it, it's not as bad, but it's hidden. And I think sometimes that's really quite, quite more distressing and that seeps into all institutions and so we really need to say that even the NHS the, the, the biggest employer in this country is made out of, of immigrants so I'm a very proud immigrant I'm very proud to be Pakistani as well yes. heritage and um, came here and learned how to speak English integrated into the system went into medical school um, because I just thought the reason I went into medical school and then you're gonna laugh at this after is because I just thought, I don't want to get married. <laughs> <laughs> like, the, the thing was, was that, um, you know, this girl's getting older. Um, my parents were like, I'm the eldest of five. What are we going to do with her? She's very outspoken. Let's get her married off. And I was like, I'm not getting married off. I'm going to yeah. go into prison. <laughs> but it's hardly, I was like, five years, give me five years. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, exactly. So I went into medicine because I just thought, this is great. I can have some freedom. And, and then I studied in London and got my medical degree and then did all my you know, residency or house jobs or house officer jobs. Um, got my license to practice as a GP. And then I did um, get married. And actually, I did the very good thing. I say good thing, not that there's any bad ways of doing it. But my parents said, who do you want to get married to? And I said, well, I've got no one. Um, I'm very scatty. And they were like, well, should we find you somebody? And I said, yes, please do. And uh, yeah, then I had a, a, a very lovely, lovely arranged marriage. And he's stuck with me now for 16 years. Yeah. <laughs> so I think the arranged marriage went okay. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and now he, yeah, he sort of puts up with a lot. And the, the amazing thing is, is this misconception about, even when I was having this arranged marriage, because we hadn't met, we, we, we didn't even see each other. Oh my gosh. My friends in medical school were like, and they were so surprised because he's from Pakistan. Um, but I know him very well. So he's a couple of villages down from the village that I was born in. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know, I'm from the village. You know, everybody's from, you know, farmers. I'm, you know, Zameenwale. So, so I was like, that's fine. I'll, it, it'll be okay. He's a barrister. And uh, I knew on that front, we'll be fine. And honestly, I've married the male version of me. And oh lovely. <laughs> there is, um, he's a, a human rights and immigration lawyer now. Oh, in that's the, great. His own law firm in London. But it was amazing because I think that, um, although I think you can take someone out of Pakistan, but you can't take the Pakistan out of that person. <laughs> and I'm that individual, whereas, you know, I will wear my dupatta, I will wear my shirwar and even at work sometimes, because even though I'm very much British in that respect, but your cultural heritage and your roots are the things that ground you. And yeah. so being grounded is really important part of, I think, growth in the future as well, because you feel that you belong. And one of the things that you have as immigrants is that your sense of belonging, where do I belong? Either you keep finding someone to hold on to, an institution to hold on to, to think this is where I belong, or you find it within yourself. And so for me, my faith and obviously my heritage is that thing that gives me belonging. So fast forward to the pandemic and the BBC approached me and said, do you want to 
be one of the doctors who's talking about COVID. And I said, I will, but um, I want to remain as I am and I will keep my hijab as I, as I wear it. Um, and I will wear my shalwar kameez and I'll talk about COVID. I'm not going to talk about terrorism as a Muslim woman because that's what everybody expects you to do. Right. <laughs> And uh, um, or I'm not going to bake you something, or I'm going to cook you something, because this is in them. You know, Muslim are not just pakating or like There's nothing wrong with that. I love cooking. I mean, I spend most of my time in my kitchen, which is where I am at the moment. But there is this misconception that Jorat hijab dalti is a woman that wears a hijab or dupatta dalti hai. Wo bahut like she's backwards. I don't know. Do you do you still find that? I find that sometimes. Um, not, not so much here. I don't think that I, 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 well, sometimes, you know, people might think that they're more traditional, but, yeah. um, but it's a, not, feeling that she's more traditional, the fact that she's more reserved or, and the, this is the thing that really, really infuriates me is that they think that you're a, you're a better Muslim. Yes. Uh, you're just because you cover your head. Yes. Yes. <gasps> That makes me so angry. There are very few things in life that make me angry, but that's one of the things that make me angry. And the reason that is, is because the misconception of uh, what hijab is. Hijab isn't just covering your hair. Hijab is of your eyes, of your mind, of everything. And so if you cover, you could cover your hair, but have absolutely, you know, no moral. That's ridiculous. To judge someone just because of the basis of their looks is ridiculous. To yes. start. And I think it was really the fact that I thought, I just want to stay as authentic as possible, yet do my medicine, which I love and enjoy, and give it out on social media to individuals, because it's very rare that we get seen or heard, unfortunately, as women of color and, and migrants, and also uh, women who you know, are proud of their cultural heritage. Yes, you know, absolutely. So it's funny that you should say that, because, um, I get I get the opposite. So I get like, well, where's your hijab? You know, you're you're a Muslim woman, right? Where, where's your hijab? And so that that's a lot. I get that a lot on my TikTok. And uh, I agree with you 100%. You know, I used to wear hijab. I wore hijab for um, throughout my undergraduate medical school and first year of training, uh, you know, and then I ended up taking it off um, while I was in residency, but it was the same thing, right? So when I wore hijab, you know, I was this perfect Muslim, right? <laughs> Even though that may not have been the case. Yeah. And then when you take it off, then like, oh my gosh, what happened? You know, why, why are you doing so? Definitely, there's a whole um, idea behind wearing hijab. And just like you said, you know, people see, oh, she wears a, a scarf. So, you know, does she speak English? Does she even know what I'm saying? You know, can she understand? You know, it's just, uh, right, there's oh. a... I get that from my patients. So I, I live in a very um, white Caucasian area. And a lot of the um, uh, patients, when I first, this is when I was a junior doctor, not so much now. Um, but when I was a, a younger doctor, I took over from a, a GP who had been there for 25 years, uh, and a phenomenal woman, absolutely phenomenal doctor, she retired. So I took over her list. And I would genuinely have um, patients phone the surgery uh, just to check that A, I didn't have an accent, B, that I could speak English, because I read my name, and they're like, this is a very complicated, or I would get, it's a very ethnic name. <laughs> um, and then I, they would see the headscarf, and they would assume that I'm not the doctor. I genuinely had a woman, I, I went out into a reception, and I called out her name, and she came 
by me and she said to me oh you're not my doctor my doctor isn't brown and i i looked at her and i just thought to myself oh my god oh my goodness this this is there's this concept that a doctor is a, like people still have this concept of a male sadly of a white version of it but then on the flip side now that i'm on social media and i wear a hijab i'll get some people who are fascinated by the fact that i wear a hijab and some sadly from people from my community he will say but um behan hum toh gardan dekh sakte we can see your neck <laughs> you ridiculous so i realized the the reason of sharing that story is i realized that wherever you go the way that you are you look you can't change that you can't change the color of where well, you can change the color of your hair but i guess you can't change anything about yourself but i'm a brown woman wherever i will go you're a brown woman wherever yeah. you will go Absolutely. whether you dress in a bikini or whether you wear a hijab or whether you wear a burqa or anything along the lines what matters is is what value you bring to that conversation that's happening in that time Absolutely. you know that's the that's the thing that i think that constantly we should be teaching our daughters along the way and our sons along the way because you can't so do why why should you change so if someone says to your sister where's your hijab the say to the but the piece of cloth on my hair is not the value that i bring to a conversation the value is what's coming out of here because what's up here absolutely absolutely 100% and that's you know i i feel that people just get lost right like they forget <laughs> what you're even saying because they're so focused on what you're not right yeah. <laughs> that it, it doesn't matter but i think that um back to that point of belonging we all want to belong to something and we all want to have an identity and no one teaches you i your identity if that makes sense especially if like you're a pakistani woman in america in new york or a pakistani woman in, in this country but no one teaches you that the western way the minute you leave your house and then the cultural values that your parents and your uncles and your aunties and your cousins and your grandparents and the you know the the heritage you know of your ancestors that you bring along with all the pain and the partition and colonialism and the british raj all that pain comes along and in america is still you know it's the same and and no one verbalizes that because it's something that's seen as not important but it is because your identity allows you to mentally feel acceptance and then that's why that we do have individuals who are then feeling lost and caught up in what you're not saying or what you are saying because they want to be grounded all the time and no I'm not saying I've got the solution because I can tell you I'm still finding ways where I feel I don't belong so <laughs> there are still moments where i think oh this is not the space for me no it's um you know they they talk about that a lot right about um how like centuries of um well here they they specifically talk about like with african americans and uh you know black and brown people and how we always used to say that you know being african american was a risk factor for hypertension right but what we didn't say is that all those years of oppression right and all those years of racism that still persist that that you know continues from generation to generation to generation and so that is what you know 
makes the person a risk factor for having high blood pressure, right? Is all that uh, mental trauma that they've experienced, right? So I think it has something to do with what you were saying about like our identity and how we bring all that with us, right? Whether or not we, when we leave our countries and when we come here, we still bring all of that baggage with us, right? So I think, yeah, I agree with you. I think that there's, you have to be grounded and you have to know who you are and then just see what value you can bring. But I also want to talk to you about all, everything that you've done with like women's health. I think it's amazing with all of your TikToks and, you know, you talk a lot about hormone replacement therapy. So what's, what's like your main focus now? Is it more talking about like menopause and perimenopause or, you know, you have a special liking for menopause um, and all of the different treatments. So what do you like to focus on when you do like most of your reels and um, all of your social media? So at the moment, I'm focusing a lot of my social media on menopause. And the reason being is because um, my mother is in that age group. And she'll hate me saying it. <laughs> and the woman that you love, and she's the woman that I love and adore, um, she's, she's going to be my priority. So she's at the forefront because she's the woman that's given me everything. And for her and her friends, they're in that similar boat. And they are all women who for some English isn't the first language, you know, English is not their first language. They've been jubby and, and the myths around the menopause and the HRT particularly, um, I think need to be pulled apart a little bit because if they're pulled apart, then we can empower women. And I think the thing that gets me is the fact that women don't seem to understand that um, menopause is a transition that happens to everybody but there are statistically, I mean, this is the UK statistics, but you can be affected profoundly. So, and it starts relatively young. That's the other thing. They always think it's going to happen in my 60s and my 70s and then that's it. And that's all I'm going to have. And so, uh, and also it's not talked about. There's a shame or as my mother has said, and I'm like, no, the panda needs to be lifted a bit. And the reason being is because if you hide something under the veil, you nullify the experience of that woman. So if she's having hot flushes, night sweats, palpitations, you know, everything hurts, head to toe pain. If she's getting headaches, psychological symptoms, paranoia, tinnitus, the change in her mouth taste goes. And then if she's finding that she's having sexual dysfunction as well as part of it, and she's still in her 40s. And we, I think those are the things that are so taboo, so shameful that we don't bring them out into the open. So when I started doing TikToks, uh, it was I, I was actually really nervous when I started doing them. Firstly, my sister thought I was stupid. And, uh, so my sister is a dentist and she said to me, why are you on a young person's app? It's like 17 and 16 year olds doing TikTok dances. And I was like, no, I think that the best thing to do is to, if you teach them young, they will teach. My plan was really that I couldn't access uh, my women. And I say my women when I mean like South Asian women, but all women are, I feel are my women. But I couldn't access them through Instagram and Twitter because A, Twitter they don't really read and Instagram um, is very aesthetically beautiful. Um, and I just always feel that Instagram is not real life. And whereas TikTok I could do to camera, spiel off some medical information, clip it and put it out there. And it, it, for me, it felt like very little effort. Uh, it is, I mean, it's a lot of effort, don't get me wrong. And it is. Making reels and making, yes. I mean, phenomenal reels. I mean, I've watched them all, I'm like, oh my goodness, this is so good. 
Yeah, tons of work. And it's, it's take time and you take time out of your own schedule. And I have to find pockets of time after surgery and clinics where my three kids aren't running around. And I thought that if I put this out there, then the 16 and 17 year olds who are watching this will go, will speak to their mum and say to their mum that this is what's happening. And I did some in Urdu as well. So I did some in vaginal atrophy in Urdu and mental health stuff in Urdu as well. And along the way, I realized that I don't always have the lexicon in my language in Urdu, how to explain vaginal dryness. How do you say that in Punjabi or Urdu? How do no you say it? Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, we've got two doctors on this call and both of us are from the same heritage and going, actually, we don't know that in our, in our language. <laughs> no, I have no idea. Yeah. And so if you don't have the language skills to go to the doctor in, in the NHS system, which is set up for a 10 minute consultation, and that's all I get. And then you're sent away and with treatment that isn't adequate, you're still left with the symptoms. And I had, um, so when I came to the UK, uh, the community here took real good care of us. And there was a particular auntie, you know, everybody's your auntie. And she was a really good auntie of mine. And um, she, you know, she grew me up and she saw me through medical school. And in hindsight now, whenever I would see her at the mosque, she'd always say, everything hurts and I'm getting flushes and things. And now I know it was menopausal symptoms. She went to see her GP. Her doctor said, well, we're running a battery of tests, all normal. But her ESR, which is a marker that we use sometimes for fibromyalgia, came back as slightly raised. And that marker came back raised and so put her on steroids. She went out to put some clothes on a line, slipped in the snow, fracture neck of femur. Asian women, high risk of fracture neck of femur because we cover up, lack of vitamin D, put on steroids on top of that. I mean, it was, a, it was an accident. She ended up becoming, she had sepsis from the fracture neck of femur. She died at the age of 52. Oh my gosh. And you look at that and, you, and, and no, there's no mistakes. I mean, if you look at it, the, the care she had was lovely and brilliant. Um, as a Muslim woman, you think, you think, okay, you know, Allah ki marzi, everyone always says this. Her time was going to come and we almost become very passive to that. And then as a clinician, I'm thinking, hang on, but we don't see that in other communities where there's better awareness of this. It, why do we just sort of have to become really passive to the fact that death has happened and not actually question it? What could have been done? She could have been prevented. All she needed was some HRT. I mean, if she had some HRT, that would have protected her bones, protected her heart, and she would still be with us. And so that's not just my aunt. I mean, that could be my mum. That could be your mum. That could be your sister. And when you think of it like that, and you think this is a cycle of actually, that's when it's awful, because what you know as a clinician, you're not teaching to your own community. And you're not raising the awareness. And then we question ourselves going, oh, but there's worse outcomes in black Asian ethnic minorities. There's worse outcomes for women. And, you know, there's higher rates of heart disease, higher rates of diabetes, higher rates of dementia. Blah, you know, you list it in, in our communities. And we think to ourselves, but where are we ever going to say enough and put in some intervention and then make the change? And that's where TikTok really came about because I wanted to get into the family WhatsApp groups. And that's what happened. A lot of my videos got picked up by those young individuals who were doing TikTok dances and realized that that was their mom that has had those symptoms, went into the WhatsApp group. And then I think that harnessing social uh, digital media as you do as well, because you do it brilliantly. Ah, yes. I learn from you <laughs> is, is that this is what we need. We need to be seen, we need to be heard and not to be scared because of everything coming out of the parda and going, 
what is this? But that's when change will happen. And knowing, telling women actually hormone replacement therapy is, is, you know, there are risks attached to it, but it's not into the context that we think it is. So think I'm interested to find out, I didn't mean to cut you off, but here in the US, you know, after the WHI study that happened, right? Um, there's a huge hesitation. In fact, I just went to the American College of OBGYNs. They had a meeting in San Diego and they talk about how there's a whole generation and that would include my generation of OBGYNs that are very hesitant to prescribe HRT, you know, because of the risks that were found and the, um, you know, the possible risk of increase in breast cancer and, you know, blood clots and things like that. Um, and, you know, what they say, and it actually came out in the Journal of uh, American Medical Association, um, in a, it was in 2020, and they talked about hormone replacement. And of course, you know, and I'm just interested to find out what they say in England. But what they said in that article was that, you know, start hormone therapy as close to menopause as you can, right? So in that um, 50s range, and use it for the least amount of time that you need. Um, so for the shortest duration and the lowest dose. And they say, you know, typically you should, you should try to wean people off within a few years of like, say like five, six years, whatever. And that definitely you shouldn't place somebody on it like that are in their 60s, right? So start when they're in their 60s. So that's what the article said. I'm just interested to find out what, you know, what is it that you say in England and how you prescribe it and... Yeah. So we've rigorously looked at the data and we have something called the um, National Institution of Clinical Excellence, NICE, which is gold standard. And in 2019, the NICE guidance for menopause has come out. And that's a combination of the British Menopause Society looking at all the data. Now, firstly, the WHI study. We need to be absolutely clear. The WHI study um, was focusing on synthetic forms of hormones. Yes. The WHI study looked at women in their 60s. Now we know if we're looking at the risk factors that came out of there, breast cancer for one, breast cancer is a disease of age. As we get older, our natural estrogen that we produce as women will affect the cells in our boobs. And then therefore those cells will become inflamed and change. And where you get change, you get mistakes. Where you get mistakes, you get cancer. I mean, that's the honest truth. And breast cancer is a horrific condition. I have patients who get diagnosed with breast cancer, family relatives who have breast cancer, but they're all not all on HRT. So you look at that and you think, hang on, you're not even on HRT and you've got breast cancer. So surely we've got to look at the risks. And that's what people forget that there are risks and then there's absolute risks. And then risks that are going to be in the background anyway. You cross a road, 50-50 chance you get hit by something if you don't look properly. But you, you reduce those risks by looking, stepping out when the traffic is light, so you have to think of medicine in that way. What are your risks that you bring along with you as an individual? What is your weight? Women who are in their 60s who have a body mass index of over 30 um, have a 50% increased risk of breast cancer. If you drink two or more glasses of wine a night, so that's over 14 units a week, your risk of breast cancer increases far more than being a hormone replacement therapy. And then we've got to understand that hormone replacement therapy has changed along the way. So the WHI looked at synthetic forms of hormone replacement therapy.
Now what we have is something known as body identical, and I think in America it's known as bio-identical. Yeah. So hormones which are similarly replicating your own hormones made from sort of root vegetables and yams. And they come as gels, patches, and sprays. And you can get a micronized progesterone, which is called eutrogestan, uh, in the progesterone form, and cyclogest as well, which is a vaginal form of progesterone. So the studies that were done for the WHI study that says that a woman should stay on HRT at the bare minimum for the shortest period, I don't think can be transimposed from that data to what the HRTs we have now. The studies that was done, so there's a study that came out in, in um, July, uh, actually from the American uh, Menopause Society, uh, Society um, that shows that women who are on uh, body identical hormone replacement therapy, their risk of clots is not there. Mm. Risk. Remember, we have a background risk anyway. One in a thousand, I think, roughly, uh, will get a blood clot for no rhyme or reason. But then if you are on body identical and your risk of breast cancer and clots decreases. And if you are a woman who doesn't have a womb, being on estrogen alone doesn't increase your risk of breast cancer. Remember I said, you have a background risk anyway, from the moment, you know, because our own natural estrogen works on us. So that concept of remaining a woman, and I'm that generation of, of your generation, where we were taught, take the woman off HRT after five years. I, that doesn't apply anymore. And that's what we need to be, uh, empowering our clinical fellows and also our patients with to say, actually, let's look at the benefits that come with having it. So what are the benefits? And then weigh that up with your own medical history. So the benefits of having hormone replacement therapy gives you a better quality of life. The younger you start it, the better quality of life. There's more and more data from Lisa Moscone, who's a consultant who's doing research into HRT and dementia. So we know that brain fog is real. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. And linked to the fluctuations in estrogen and testosterone, we think as well. Um, but that's a whole other conversation. We can come back to that. And we know that if we start estrogen or hormone replacement therapy early, then it stops the neuroplasticity that can happen with that brain fog. So actually starting younger, so in the perimenopausal phase is a good idea. And then also we know it protects your bones. You know, that's the, the biggest finding for me is that we have, we spend 1.3 billion pounds in the UK in the NHS on fractures. <laughs> and if we can prevent that, isn't that brilliant? Yes. And on top of that, it actually gives you protections against heart disease. So we need estrogen as women. We always think that estrogen is this terrible hormone, but it can't be a terrible hormone because we produce it naturally. It dries our fertility. And what we need it for is because of what I realized is estrogen is like a lubrication. We need it because it's an immune modulator. It looks after our immune system. It looks after our brain vessels. It, it sort of nourishes all the blood vessels around your heart. So therefore, actually lowers your blood pressure, lowers your risk of heart disease, gives you more energy to exercise, lowers your risk of type 2 diabetes, which is another huge cardiovascular risk as well and you exercise better, and the psychological symptoms. So estrogen, we know, reduces that the palpitations, the panic attacks, the self-esteem, the anxiety. And so therefore, when you look at the benefits outweighing the risks, you think actually, does this lean towards the fact that my patient will benefit from hormone replacement therapy? And, and I've been a clinician now for 15 years, and I've come to the point where I have a very frank conversation with my patients. I go through their medical history, I go through their risk factors and then their benefits. And if they don't have a womb, I say, I'm just gonna give you estrogen alone. 
if they have a womb, I give them estrogen and progesterone and then go through the different types that we have. So, you know, there's, there's capsules that we have. This is micronized progesterone. This is body identical. And I give them a gel or I will give them patches or I will give them a spray. And if it's a gel like this, it's transdermal, goes into the fat cells and then goes into the skin, into the bloodstream, bypasses the liver, therefore doesn't trigger off your clotting factors. And then you get benefits from it. And now we're knowing that it gives you benefits longer, in longer term, because of prevention of other diseases. So as a healthcare professional, my whole job is, is to prevent other diseases developing down the line. So I say to a patient, do you want to live longer in misery because of the risk of this happening with hormone replacement therapy? Or do you want to live with quality of life, even if it's shorter? And for me, as a clinician, as a woman, who will go through the perimenopause and menopausal phase? I'm not too far off it. I'd rather have quality of life than live till I'm about 103 and say, yeah, but I was absolutely miserable. So I'm wondering, uh, how long do they stay in the UK to stay on hormone replacement? It depends on the type of hormone replacement therapy. So it's vaginal, so it's vaginal estrogen, lifelong. I don't take women off it. If I put them on it, I say, you stay on it. And this is for vaginal atrophy or genital urinary syndrome of the menopause. And then if it comes to um, women who don't have a womb, or particularly for women who've had a bilateral salpingal oophorectomy, so they've had their ovaries removed, and then I say to them, a low dose of transdermal estrogen, so a patch or gel or spray, for as long as the woman needs. I mean, they do say that after the age of about 55 or 60, the woman won't need it. But I know that some patients get flushes afterwards. So then again, you do that risk assessment. You do that risk balance assessment very carefully with that patient. It's that whole question, do you want quality of life or quantity of life? So for me, I've got some of my patients in their 70s and 80s who don't have a womb, who are in a very low dose of gel that they just put onto their thigh and then if it's a woman that does have a womb she's got estrogen and progesterone so then i say to her well up until about 55 is probably when you need it maybe lower than 60 so i go up to 60 and then i say to the woman but if you wanted longer you can and there are different ways of having it so as i said earlier you can have a coil as well so one of the other options i give women is that i say to them look i'm going to insert a coil like this that will go into your womb it will take the lining of your womb away. And if you're a perimenopausal woman, it gives you contraception as well because we're still having periods. It will protect you from endometrial cancer because the lining doesn't thicken up and give you HRT for five years. In the UK, it's licensed for five years as a progesterone component. And I've just inserted a, this type of coil, a Marina coil, looks like this. A couple of days, because I do a clinic yesterday, actually this Thursday, so I put something like this. And my patient was very fit. She was, seven, she was 62. So I put a Marina in a 62-year-old. Happy days. Really good. And she's going to get progesterone. And she's going to get some gel. And that's her HRT. So for me, as a clinician, it's risk versus benefits. And I don't think there's, for me as a clinician doing menopause care, I don't put an age limit on it at all. And if you think back, we don't do that for a lot of other drugs. Like, do yeah. we statins because you've reached 60 i mean that's ridiculous yeah. why why is there an age limit there is no data to categorically tell you why there has to be an age limit and i've not seen any data to show me and so i go by an individual choice 
of that patient that's sitting in front of me who is suffering with the symptoms. They are my priority and I'm their advocate. Yeah, that's interesting. You know, I mean, I've, I've never put in a IUD in, <clears throat> in somebody that is menopausal, but that's interesting, right? To give that for progesterone and, uh, and it's low dose. Right. It's low, very low dose, to, yeah. you know, levogestrel, 20 micrograms, so tiny, tiny dose. So in the UK, if a woman has um, postmenopausal bleeding, yeah, so, and she's not on HRT, she'll go to her gynecologist who will do a hysteroscopy, so take a biopsy, check that out, find out what it is. And if it's not cancer, and if there's just a lining that's thickened, they'll be either offered an ablation, so burning away the layer, and then have a marina coil put in to stop that lining from coming back. Yeah, yeah. So um, if, if we know that it's safe and it stops thickening of the lining, why wouldn't you put it into a woman and just use as an age as a discriminatory factor? Yeah, I guess, you know, I think the thought is, is that, you know, you don't have the estrogen when they're menopausal, right? Estrogen uh, growing that lining as much so then you know why would you need that progesterone but um you know i see what you're saying about the hrt part of it yeah exactly because if they need it as a component of hrt then that's they're working away stops their periods yeah. and then they need estrogen a small dose of it for flushes or bone protection because it's now part of the guidelines for osteoporosis um, or the you know their uh, palpitations, which you've had everything ruled out to say that, and you know these are menopausal symptoms, because for me as a clinician looking after women, there is no such thing as that your symptoms go away. I still get you know sixty year olds, seventy year olds who still come back to me and say I've got flushes, or I've got mood symptoms, and you know I've got libido issues. Uh, I've, I've got a ninety year old who's on her fifth husband and still wants great sex, and I'm like why not? So <laughs> awesome. it, it's, it's awesome. And I think that the, it's, it's having the options, right? As a, as a doctor, it's having the confidence to have the options to give to the patient and then weighing, weighing up the risks and benefits for that patient and then empowering them to go away and make that choice that's suitable for them. And then I always come back and I keep saying it, is it quality of life are you after or is it quantity of life? So if my 92-year-old said, look, I don't want any sex or and I'm, then it's painful to have sex, then what's a little bit of vaginal estrogen at that age? I mean, it, it, it makes no sense. Give her the estrogen. It will, it will help her. Yeah, yeah. I'm wondering also, you know, in terms of the testosterone, do you give out testosterone as well? And what's the dosage that you use? Yeah, so testosterone is, um, you've hit a very contentious issue in the UK. Um, so we have a, a very uh, lovely, incredible individual who's an influencer in the UK uh, called Davina McCall. And Kate Muir is a documentary maker. And her and um, uh, Davina McCall and lots of other, I was part of the first documentary. This is a second documentary. We looked at testosterone. Now, testosterone, we know we need as women because our ovaries produce it. And as we go through change, our ovaries stop producing testosterone. And if you've got primary ovarian insufficiency, or if you've got chemical menopause, so you've got medicines that's triggered off your menopause, or you've had as, you know, your ovaries removed, then obviously you're going to lose well, your testosterone levels as well. You're going to lose that hormone that you need. And it, we need it for our libido, our muscle mass, our bone strength, we need it for cognition, 
we need it for fatigue, our energy levels, and we need it a little bit um, to drive our metabolism as well. So the difficulty we have is that I know all these benefits that you get uh, from having testosterone. There's only one um, gel which is on the market for women called Androfem. And the NHS, which is what I work for, which is a healthcare free at the point of access, um, won't cover that in their cost budgeting because it's really expensive. So we have the male versions of testosterone available for women at lower doses. Okay. The data and the studies done on women is woefully lacking. I mean, that's woefully lacking in everything. You look at heart attacks and women are not researched. It's always men's data imposed on women. But the British Menopause Society says that testosterone should be given for low libido. Once the woman has been completely estrogenized, so she's on her estrogen, you've looked at psychological factors and social factors, because remember, libido isn't just a hormonal issue, it has to be the social and, and psychological factors, and you've dealt with those, and you still think, right, I'm not getting any better then we do what's known as an androgen index on a woman. So we do a blood test checking her sex binding globulin hormone and a testosterone, free testosterone level. You calculate the sex, you know, the androgen index. And there's a cutoff marker. If you score below, in my area where I practice, it's if you score less than 1.5%. So the, the range that we like women to be in is between 2 and 5% of their androgen index. And if you're sort of below 1.5%, then you can have on the NHS um, from a specialist, the male version of the testosterone. So that's testin, testogel or tostran. And that mm. can be given in a small dose to you that you will try for three to six months to see if it makes any difference to your symptoms of libido. But um, this is an area which again, I feel there's a bit of sexism involved uh, in this area because we're sort of saying to women, jump through all these hoops. We just need good research. Just like with, and I start back at endometriosis, we just need better research to get a, di a good diagnostic test for endometriosis. Women wouldn't have to wait 10 years for a diagnosis. And this is the same, that women should be offered, especially if they're in primary ovarian insufficiency or they've had their ovaries removed, to say, have testosterone as well because this will look after your muscle mass, your cognition. And so the, the availability of testosterone in the UK uh, does very much vary according to your patch that you live in because there's a postcode lottery but there are availabilities of what you can have and then you can go privately to have the female version which is androfem but i've got some really exciting news the the plan is is that because now manufacturers have understood the importance of testosterone from the studies that are coming about uh, the fact that it does have lots of benefits and very little effect there's no data to suggest that impacts on breast cancer or that it impacts on the lining of the womb, causes clots or anything, because it's a gel that you put onto the skin, so it's transdermal. So that other manufacturers are now looking at making their own formulation of female testosterone, which means that there'll be a generic version, so the prices will come down. So then okay. we're able to have that on the NHS. But again, it's that exciting frontier of medicine that we're looking at. Yeah, I you know I agree with you 100%. I, I you know... I believe definitely there needs to be more research done for women and there definitely is not, right? Mm -hmm. And even for people of color and it's just all the research has always been done on white males. So absolutely, you're 100% correct. Here, what they say about testosterone is that, you know, um, that we should use a tenth of the dosage 
that um, you know yeah. that men get, and that you know we have to look for signs of like clitoromegaly and you know hirsutism and acne and all of those things, male pattern baldness, things like that. Um, <laughs> this is not making a face because I've been prescribing testosterone because uh, as a private GP for about five years. And I've been given Androfem and I have given Testim and Tostagel as well. And honestly, I, I, to this day, I've not seen male pattern baldness from a gel on a woman or her voice changing into a man. Is the dose is minuscule. And what we do is we do a blood test. So we do another androgen index once the woman's on treatment three months later to check what her percentage is. Is she between that two to five percent? And so, the, you know, we have safety measures built in as clinicians when we start something, as we do with, you know, HRT. We do uh, three monthly, six monthly, 12 monthly reviews of HRT. You know, it's not something that it's just, I just feel that sort of this, it's good to be aware of that. But have you ever seen clitoral megaly on a woman that you've given testosterone to? <laughs> no, I haven't. Yeah. But... And you've been a clinician for how long? 18 years. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's because what they've used, they've used the data of oral testosterone. So your muscles will build up and your Adam's apple will develop and your male button. They've used that data to write down the guidelines for the gel version because, and we see that. We see that with topical vaginal estrogen. You read the pamphlet that comes with topical vaginal estrogen, you will get breast cancer, you will get clot. And it's the same, it's because there is this not attention paid to the fact that hormones given in different ways has their own, and they haven't done the research, they just treat And this is what I think lots of people don't understand. They will, manufacturers, to get through their guidance or the guidelines for the MRHA or the FDA, will just pick those guidelines and just stomp it onto another bit. And Dr. Rachel Rubin uh, has been campaigning really hard with the FDA, and we have in the UK with the MRHA, to say, please change your guidance around vaginal estrogen. It's just another barrier because that's why we can't get topical vaginal estrogen, which doesn't get absorbed in your bloodstream, does not start breast cancer, does not trigger off breast cancer or recurrence of it, but in fact protects you against UTIs, protects you against um, having vaginal atrophy, protects you against from having sore pain, painful sex, painful smears, which in the UK, we have a real issue with women uptaking their free smears. And so the benefits are so great, but yet we're denying women this by saying, you know, oh, but it causes breast cancer. If, you, if I use vaginal estrogen, so this is Vagifem, for one year, it's equivalent to using one dose of this a day. Mm. It's tiny. And the same with testosterone. It's tiny amounts. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. You know, the, so that's, that's currently what um, the American College of OBGYNs, especially, you know, with um, things that are not FDA approved, they just don't have the research. And so I think they're very hesitant to, you know, prescribe those uh, medications that they don't have enough research for. And so um, they just don't advocate for it, you know. And that, and that is where it comes from yourself as a clinician, um, myself as a clinician, reading the data, looking at the data and empowering each other's colleagues. Um, so I talk to a lot of oncologists and I talk to a, a lot to heart doctors as well. And even local gynecologists, because we just assume gynecologists know everything about HRT. 
And in the UK, actually, that's not the case because menopause is its own specialism. Gynecologist is gynecology. It's a general term. And then you will find the area that you like. It's exactly like as a GP. I'm a family pro GP. But if you came in with a shoulder problem, I probably would have a good idea what the shoulder problem is. But I'm going to send you to my colleague down the corridor who does shoulders day in, day out. That's his bread and butter. So I think that this is where there's a mismatch in people's expectations and understanding of healthcare systems. And then also empowering our colleagues out there, like oncologists, to say, if your patient who's a woman who is having, you know, vaginal atrophy or recurrent urinary tract infections, please have the confidence to start her on vaginal estrogen because you will save her so many trips to the hospital, urosepsis and just painful agony, the mental health anguish that comes with that. And I think this is where social media and digital platforms, like I can virtually reach out my hand to you <laughs> from uh, across the pond and say, look at the data together. Because I learn from you just as much as I learn from all the other clinicians who are practicing across the world. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think that's so great, right? With uh, this access that we have and uh, you and I are talking and we're in different um, countries across the pond, right? <laughs> well, so, you know, I, I know that we're approaching an hour and I don't want to take up too much of your time, but maybe, you know, another time we can talk about, I'd love to uh, talk to you about uh, the taboo of talking about sex, right? In our cultures and, um, you know, all the importance of sex education and oh, contraception and uh, sexually transmitted infections and all of that stuff, right? And empowering women. And I think you have the same idea that I do that, you know, the more that we have education, the more we empower our women, the more that women can make, um, you know, good informed decisions about their bodies and their health. Definitely. And I think the talking about sex in a, ethnic minority communities is is really like the last taboo we we talk a lot about mental health and we talk we've started to talk about our bodies and breast cancer and and um we started to talk about menopause and, and the conversations are opening up but the last sort of frontier for as a muslim woman <laughs> as a as a south asian woman i have to say is that conversation around sex because especially in the communities that i come from we still practice a lot of um uh, arranged marriages. I mean, my own marriage was arranged marriage, um, but I don't ever remember ever having that conversation with my mother about sex. Never. Uh, the uh, and um, it's something that is so taboo that even I sometimes feel I'm not comfortable talking about it. And isn't that weird? Because I talk about so much. Um, but we need we need to get over that that fear and that yeah. shame. And I come back to it. Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. I think that it's, um, it's a very important topic. And um, it's something that we, we do need to especially, you know, talk to our, our girls and our women and definitely to the men. But, you know, I think um, so much is, is, like you said, you know, that, um, you know, we, we just don't know and the women don't know and they don't know what to expect. And they don't know what's normal and what's not normal. Right, and uh, I think that makes it more difficult. So, yeah, but no, ha happy to do that. And honestly, it's a real joy to speak to you. Yeah, yes, think. yes, I really enjoyed it as well. Because, so, um, so, your, so your content on um, talking about sex, um, and I know you have a podcast as well because I tuned into it. And I think those sort of conversations are so liberating, 
And that's the joy of podcasts. You can listen to it in your own time when you're ironing or cooking or, you know, the kids are doing something or you're out on a run or something like that. And I think that the, um, the joy of that is now harnessing social media and digital media means that we can open up the conversations for our daughters because we don't want our daughters and our daughters' daughters and our daughters' daughters, you know, decades down the line having the conversations we're still having and sitting there in silence because that just breaks my heart when I think about that. I think that's, that's not the way it should be at all. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Nigat. And uh, I look forward to seeing more of your reels and all the other adventures that uh, you're having. That's so amazing. So thank you. And oh, uh, hopefully we can schedule another time where we can, we'll talk about sex. Oh, my favorite topic. Yeah. Like <laughs> <laughs> I love you too. Thank you. All right. Bye-bye. Assalamualaikum. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to schedule a one-on-one -on -one coaching with Dr. Lodi, please visit drsadaf.com. And until next time, this is the Muslim Sex Podcast.